I would invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, as we continue in this series on parables, deceptively simple stories revealing to us profound truths that make us stop, think, and act. Luke's chapter 10, as we look at to probably a familiar parable to most of you, if not all of you, but as we, uh, get, we pray that God reveals his word to us this morning, we're changed as a result. You know, one of my favorite uh, movies is The Sting. It's an older movie, Robert Redford and Paul Newman star in it. And it's all about these two con men that are outwitting a rich man, a man of high level, a man of high status, by taking his money, making him a laughing stock, and ruining his reputation. Really sounds like a great film, doesn't it? Uh, but it really is a hilarious film, and to see these guys actually do what they set out to do. And we find ourselves in our story today, the religious leaders were setting up a sting for Jesus. They did that because they wanted Jesus to affirm them rather than just say, oh, you guys are actually on the outside, and other people who are on the outside are actually the ones who are in. It's one of the reasons that we've looked at already is that the kingdom of God is a surprising kingdom. Those who we think automatically should be in are often the ones who aren't in at all. And so these guys aren't being affirmed by Jesus, the teachers of the law, but instead are being a challenge to rethink everything that they're thinking. And so they set up this sting to take away the influence or try to take the influence of Jesus and to discredit his ministry and to ruin his reputation. But it's hard to pull a fast one on the one who knows all things and the one who knows every intention of the human heart. And so we see this attempt, attempt as we pick up in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I want to challenge us this morning. Let us not think that because we know Christ, because he is for us, nothing can be against us, that that automatically assumes that we are always right that our ways are always automatically God's ways. And I want us to challenge for us to evaluate our own hearts and our own lives and thinking, am I really on the side of Jesus? Are my desires his desires or the desires that I've been culturally conditioned to have or things in my own life that I think are right that maybe are against what God, what Jesus in particular, is actually teaching? And here's the key question that I want us to observe today. When I see a need, do I move away or do I move towards it? When I see a need, do I move away, do I pull back, or do I get drawn into that need? 
Our story unfolds with a lawyer who comes up to Jesus. Now, that's not a modern lawyer like we think of today, but someone who's skilled in the Old Testament law. And he's asked Jesus a question. And we're told in the text is for the specific purpose of tripping him up to discredit him. And we'll be looking at two questions that this lawyer asked. First, the initial one is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? In fact, in many ways, it is the question. He's saying, Jesus, the Old Testament speaks of a coming kingdom. You're speaking of it as well. What do I need to do in order to be prepared for it, that when I die, I do indeed gain eternal life? Well, Jesus knows that this really isn't a sincere question from him, so he answers it a bit differently than he would at other times. And in fact, he puts the question back on the lawyer. He says, well... You know the law. You know, according to the Bible, you're an expert. Why don't you tell me how someone gains eternal life? And the lawyer answers by quoting something that he would have quoted twice a day. The Shema from, he, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where he says, Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then he, he continues by adding Leviticus chapter 19. And that command there says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So he essentially says, the law says, love God with everything I have and love people. And Jesus says, bingo, you got it. That's how you gain eternal life. Now, that seems a little different than how normally Jesus responds when he's asked that question, isn't it? If you think about Nicodemus, he answers, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Later on in the book of John, he says, if you believe in me, he who believes in the Son has life. That's abundant life and eternal life. He will not face judgment, but he will enter into life. Now, he answers that because he knows the spirit behind the way the lawyer is asking him. It's not a sincere question. And we're going to unpack that a little bit later on in our message. But Jesus puts the, the question back on him again. And, he's, he's, and the, the lawyer knows that he's completely ruined. Jesus has totally dismantled this sting, this trap that they tried to set up for him, and he knows that he has been found out, but seeking to justify himself, the text says. That is to make himself look better with those that are hearing around. He says, maybe I could get Jesus into a philosophical debate. Maybe I could ask him instead, who is my neighbor? Who is it, Jesus, that I should really be reaching out to and loving the, the same way that I love myself? And Jesus answers this question of who is my neighbor with a parable. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Jesus tells this familiar story of a 17-mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. And his hearers would have taken this journey before, and they would have known this winding path that goes through barren mountains and through across rough terrain. 
they also would have known how dangerous this path was and that there were steep cliffs and there were many caves throughout which were perfect for thugs to hang out and then jump people and rob them of everything that they have. And that's exactly what happens to this Jew that's in the story. This fellow Jew has been beaten half to death, stripped of everything that he has, including his clothes. So there's a, little, there's a dire situation here. But then Jesus introduces a new element to the story, and everybody kind of takes this collective sigh. <sighs> because in verse 31, he tells us a hero shows up. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So the people get a little bit of hope here. A priest, one who represents the people to God, has now arrived. Surely this guy will take care of it. Everything is going to be fine. But Jesus tells us the priest keeps on going. So the people might assume, well, maybe he, the, the body of the guy was actually hidden behind the rock. Maybe he didn't actually see it. After all, there were a lot of nooks and crannies in there. But Jesus goes out of his way to show them and us that he saw him and did not help. In fact, the Greek wording here shows that the man saw the man in distress. The priest saw the man and then intentionally walks to the other side of the road so that he would avoid him completely. Well, the people are thinking he probably has a service to get to, and he knows there's someone coming down because he's already passed him, and he's going to take care of it. Surely he wouldn't just leave him in distress. Verse 32 says, so likewise, a Levite. Okay, here's a guy that works in the temple. He's not a priest, but his life is dedicated to service. When he came to this place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. He avoids him just like the priest does. And doesn't just avoid him, but actually makes it very clear that he wants nothing to do with the one who's in distress. Those that were made to be the, the leaders of service, those that had it all together when it came to the requirements of the law, bypassed the need. And the text is very clear that the priest and the Levite saw the need and moved away from it. Now, Jesus is about ready to shock everybody with verse 33. Let's check it out together. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. The crowd is thinking, oh, great. Now this guy's in trouble. He's already half dead. The Samaritan is going to come and finish him off and is going to take his underwear, the last thing the guy has. Because Jews hated Samaritans. They couldn't stand them. And what a Samaritan was, was when Assyria, an enemy of Israel, came down and took over the northern kingdom and took the captives away from Israel, they intermarried with the Jewish women. And the result was a mixed race of Jew and Assyrians. So you had Jew and then the enemy. Now, Samaritans mixed everything together. 
Judaism along with pagan beliefs. They had their own temple, did stuff their own way, and they were constantly at odds with the Jewish nation. And this road that they were traveling would have been the way that Jews avoided Samaria. They would actually take them around it so they could get up to the other parts of Israel without going through where they would have to interact with Samaritans. And it was even shocking the Samaritan was on this road because they weren't even supposed to travel this road, but yet here he was. And then Jesus tells us this. He says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, as he journeyed came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, poured oil on them and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So at this point, the audience's jaws are just on the ground. And Jesus kind of walks over and lifts them back up. And they're like, what in the world are you trying to teach us here? He says, the Samaritan sees this Jew who is an enemy and has compassion on him. Nurses his wounds, puts him on his own mule, and takes him to the inn and pays for him. And then Jesus turns to the lawyer and asks him a penetrating question. He says this in verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus says, which of these three proved to be the neighbor? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Or was it that Samaritan fellow that you don't enjoy? And if you notice, the lawyer doesn't even say the Samaritan. He says the neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. So the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells us it's anyone who is in need. But Jesus doesn't put the emphasis necessarily on who the neighbor is, but what kind of neighbor should we be? How should our treatment be of other people who are in need? And we don't have to figure out the meaning of this parable because Jesus tells us. He says, go and do likewise. Show this same kind of mercy just as the Samaritan did. And so let's look at this example of how the Samaritan shows mercy and how this intersects with us and how we show compassion and mercy. First of all, we see that the Samaritan saw and responded to the need. He saw and responded to the need. You see, first of all there, It starts with eyes. It starts with eyes that look and see the needs around us. And then that takes us through our eyes and into our hearts. The priest and the Levite saw him, but they moved away from the need. The Samaritan saw the need and he moved towards it. And you know, this is the way of Jesus. He sees a need and he's moved, and he doesn't move away from the need. He moves towards the need. In fact, we're told in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus is on the edge, he's a rock star, and thousands of people are gathered around to see him and to hear from him. He's on the edge of a cliff, and he looks out over the people. The 5,000 that he is about ready to feed, even more than that, is 5,000 men. And this is what it says. When he saw the crowds, 
he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So here is Jesus. He sees and he's moved with compassion. Now that word compassion, it's not actually compassion from the heart. Compassion there is the word splunk nizomai. And what that is, is compassion from the gut. All right, our center of emotions in our day and age is the heart, right? We feel our heart, we're moved from the heart. Well, in that day, it was actually from the bowels that people had their emotions that they said. That was the center of their emotions. Now, that makes sense, right? Sometimes you feel that movement in your gut, and you're like, I, I have to determine if that's the tacos from last night or if I'm really moved just in some way. But he says, he says, Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved. Every part of his being was moved towards these people. And he says, oh, these are like harassed shepherds. That, they're like harassed sheep that don't have a shepherd. And Jesus says, I want to shepherd them. He saw the crowds and he had a heart for them. And he moved towards them in compassion. Have you ever wondered, how do I know who I'm supposed to help? How do I know what needs I'm supposed to fill? Well, the answer is from the Good Samaritan is, is the need that God puts in front of you. The need that God puts in front of you. If you notice, the Samaritan wasn't on a journey looking for helpless Jews. He was going about his journey, about his day, and came across the need, and when he saw it, he was moved towards it. Some of us out there are bent towards compassion. We're bent towards mercy. God, we're so grateful for you. But let me just say to you, keep in mind that you can't help everyone. Some of us, we start to freak out. There's so many needs. There's so many needs out there. What am I supposed to do? And Jesus says, well, just relax. What the need is that I bring to you is the one that I want you to fill. And sometimes we're so concerned about the needs of the world that's out there, we miss the needs that are directly in front of us. Sometimes it's even our own family members. And Jesus says, won't you just trust me to to know that you're not the Savior? I am, and I'm going to bring the needs to your life, and when you see those needs, respond with compassion. On the other side of that, though, those of us who don't respond naturally with compassion or mercy, like me, I've mentioned before that my love language is receiving gifts, so I am not naturally one that is, like, inclined to compassion, That's not an excuse for me. Well, the needs aren't right in front of me. Really, I can make up any excuse not to help out. Jesus is saying, see the need. And when you see it, move towards it and fill it to the best that you can. Secondly, we see that the Good Samaritan responded in compassion with no conditions. He responded in compassion with no conditions. So the Samaritan saw the need and he helped. He didn't come across the poor guy in the road and go, oh, Well, buddy, you know how this happened because of the bad choices you've made. You know, if you would have had better influences in your life, uh, this wouldn't have happened. You know, I don't know. Even if I do help you, guy, uh, I'm going to check you into an end. You're going to get out early and just go buy booze with the extra money I have. I'm not sure I can help you at this point. But Jesus is saying the Samaritan helped without any conditions attached to it. 
Now people who are in distress need the gospel, amen? They also need skills, yes, to help them get out of the dire states that they're in. And so we want to point you to organizations that are doing that well, that are gospel-centered and are also helping people to develop skills in life. But it's not our place, listen to this, it's not our place to be the judge and jury when someone's in need. It's not our place to, to judge and say, well, you wouldn't have got here if you would have made better choices like I have in my life. And I think that even is so easy to do here at our church. Well, we look at someone in need and say, well, they've been lazy. They've made bad decisions. And I'm not saying that people, that if you've made bad decisions, that everyone is obligated to, to get you out of a hole. Sometimes God wants you to learn through that. But our first response should not be to judge, but to move towards and help in any way that we can. You know, it's important to notice here that Jesus actually uses a race issue. This was a huge issue in that day, just like it is today. Racism was rampant, just like it is today, but Jesus intentionally picks a race that he knew they'd be antagonistic towards, and he makes him the hero. And Jesus shows us that to have a prejudice towards someone who's a different race, a different color than we are, is anti-gospel. It is wrong. It is sinful. And Jesus also tells us that we shouldn't only supply the needs of those that are just like us, but should be ready to give to anyone who is in need. Galatians 2.28 says, There is neither Jew Gentile, slave, free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. Did you know the first person that Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah to in the book of John? Do you know who it is? This is what John tells us in chapter 4. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Who's he talking to? First of all, he's talking to a woman. That's the first person that he reveals himself to of who he is. And it's a Samaritan woman, a non-Jewish woman who's had five husbands and is living with another man, and her life is a mess. And yet Jesus shows her dignity, her worth, and value by telling her before anyone else exactly who he is. Now, there are a lot of things happening in our country, and I'm sure that you're aware of them. You've seen the things on the news about our borders and everything else that's going on there. And I have to ask myself, we need to ask ourselves the question, what does love require of me in regards to these things? I agree with Dr. Moore, who says we need both security and compassion. But let, I'm, not, I'm not giving any policy here, okay? I don't want you to come up to me and talk to me about your politics. I'm not talking about politics. I am talking about us as a church and our response to people, our hearts. Those that, if a situation is so bad, they'd be willing to be separated from a family. Thank God that's not happening anymore. But we come. Shouldn't our hearts be to reach, to love people who are in need? Shouldn't we want to desire to reach out with mercy? And I'm talking about starting with our attitudes. I've seen so many blasts on Facebook of this, we're so right, everyone else is wrong, and it's very, has any, very little mercy involved in it. 
let us respond with compassion the way that Jesus told, or the way that the scriptures tell us to in Leviticus 19. Not talking about liberals and conservatives or anything like that, but what God says. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as, you, as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God is calling us to have hearts, no matter what the circumstances, of compassion and of love. But you know, that, that's something that's kind of out there. We read about it a lot. Not many of us are really facing that. So how do we, who do we need to show mercy to right now in our sphere of influence? You know, so often we can say, I'll show mercy if. I'll show mercy to my husband if he just admit that he was wrong. I'll show mercy to my kids if they would say thank you just once. It would show me some gratitude. I will show mercy if the guy at work who was a jerk to me but marriage is struggling, if he would admit that he didn't take my advice. That's all I want. I would show mercy to my boss if he publicly said the project was my idea. I will show mercy to my next door neighbor if he would just trim his hedge. I'll show mercy to that guy at church if he would just be more faithful to our cell group. And I'm not talking about not holding people accountable to the things, but I am saying, what if Jesus said to us, I'll be merciful to you if? But he doesn't. And the Samaritan sets the example of mercy with no conditions. And the Samaritan, this cost him to do so. But he was willingly, he paid, when he was willing, he paid the cost. He paid the cost to show mercy. The Samaritan used his own oil, his own wine to bandage the Jewish man's wounds. He checks him into a hotel and stays with him through the night. He gives him two coins, which would have been equivalent to two full days of wages. That's a lot of money. And he stays with him through the night, and the next morning he offers and says, whatever else you need, I will pay it. The guy has already paid for this guy to stay in this inn for over a month with the money that he's given to him. You see, in order to show mercy, you have to bear a cost. Sometimes it's financial, but I tell you what, you know what's harder sometimes to bear a cost of is time. To show mercy, it requires a cost of your time to bear with one another to bear each other's burdens because christ is born with us and he has borne our sins and speaking of which all these things that the samaritan does in showing mercy actually point us to what christ has done in showing us mercy he sees us as lost and responds to our need but he sees that our greatest need is not to have financial stability. It's not to have our best life now, but to have our sins forgiven. And so he presents himself as savior. The answer to our need, he's moved with compassion towards us, and he comes to us with no conditions. You know, Jesus knows how we're gonna respond to his mercy. He knows. He knows that you're gonna fall back into that sin and he comes towards you anyway. He knows that you're gonna struggle, and he moves towards you anyway. 
He knows all the things that you're going to do and you're going to move back into your old ways of life and continue to fail, but he continues to show you mercy and he pays the cost in order for the mercy to be extended by giving us his very life so that we receive grace upon grace. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't say, I will show you mercy if, if you clean your life up, if you get your act together, then I'll show you mercy. No, he comes in when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of his great mercy, he's made us alive with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Jesus sees our need and has moved toward us. That's why we have this core value at our church this value that says service. Jesus made himself nothing for me, so I will consider the needs of others before my own. See, this is what we want. Gospel-motivated service because Christ has given up his all for me. I want to give my all back to him. How do we do that? How do we become people who are consistently showing compassion? People like me who it's not natural to. How do I have a long-term lifestyle of compassion and mercy? How do I grow in that way? You know, I was talking about this with my friend Zach, who's a cell group leader here at a church and member, and we were talking about this, and he said, you know, Brad, if to have long-term compassion, your affections have to change. Your values, everything that's dear to you has to be changed in order to have long-term compassion. And he told us illustration from a guy named Tony Merida, and this is what it is. Imagine that you have a teenage son. Now, some of you, that won't be hard to do because you've had one or you still currently have one. Now, if you are a teenage son, just know in this illustration, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about every other teenager your age that isn't you, Okay. This is what he says. He comes into his son's room and he says, listen, son, I want you to start to contribute a little more to this family. Why don't you go out, vacuum out the car, and take it and get it washed? And the son's like, oh, dad, I don't really want to do that. And he says, well, why don't you just contribute a little bit maybe by taking a shower every once in a while? And he says, oh, fine, I guess I'll do that. And he says, well, why don't you help out a little bit more and go get a job? Oh, I don't really want to do that. And the son has all these reasons why he doesn't want to do what the father is asking him to do. But then the son gets a girlfriend. And everything changes. All of a sudden, he's going out and he's taking the car to the car wash and he's getting it washed and he's vacuuming it out because he knows he's going to be taking a girl in that car out on a date. He's taking multiple showers a day now right? Putting on all kinds of deodorant, using all the, the Axe body spray. It's sold out at the store, right? Because he knows he's got to smell nice. He's got a job so he can pay for the dates to go out. But what changed? The place of his affection changed. The object changed. Now he has a reason for doing these things. Now he has a reason why he's doing the things that he wasn't doing before, and see, so much of us, I think when we're pursuing anything in the Christian life, and particularly in regards to compassion, we think, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be really compassionate. I'm going to pursue it, and I'm going to just be a really compassionate person. But that doesn't last long. It's not how long-term change happens. Our affections, our desires must change to be more like Christ's desires. And how do those change? By focusing in on Christ and getting to know him. 
studying the Bible, spending time with him in the word, praying, talking to him, being mentored by other people who are gonna help you grow in Christ. And you know what happens? As you do that, you start to become like the one that you're pursuing. It happens, and all of a sudden you find yourself being a more uh, merciful person because God is changing your desires. You're not hunkering down and trying harder, but God is bringing about fruit in your life, and he's changing you through the Holy Spirit. Oh, that doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with it anymore, but it means that if you want long, life-changing change in this area, you've got to grow closer to the one, who, the only one that can change you in that area, and that's Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Drawing closer to him is how long-term change happens. And listen, oh man, we so want to be a church that is good at compassion. We want to be merciful and loving. We want to be reaching out. And we know that that starts with us as individuals. It starts by drawing near to God and letting him change our affections and our desires. You remember that lawyer towards the beginning of this message? Some of you are like, that was a long time ago. I don't know. (laughs) Remember his first question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what does the law say? And the lawyer responds, love God and love people with all that you have. Now, the first question was wrong in itself. He says, what must I do? Is there something that I can do in order to gain eternal life? Jesus says, okay, if you've given me the answer to love God and love people, if you can do that, buddy, you got eternal life. What's Jesus saying? He says, listen, I know you're not asking me sincerely. You want to know to affirm you that you've kept the law, and you can't even keep the first two commandments of loving God and loving people perfectly. Jesus says, there's no way that you treated people like the Samaritan treated people in this parable. But MacArthur tells us, actually, yes, you have. You treat yourself that way every single day. That's why the command isn't love neighbors more than yourself. It's as yourself. Because God knows that you're always looking out for yourself. Even if you don't even like yourself all that much, you're still thinking about yourself all the time. And Jesus says, if you can treat people like that, you're in, knowing that nobody can. And so if this lawyer was sincere, he would have looked at Jesus and said, I can never do that, and I haven't done that. And Jesus would have said, believe in me. I have. I lived the life you could never live, completely loved God, always put others before myself, and I fulfilled everything that you're trying to do in your life with my life. I've actually done it. So you believe that I'm king, that I lived the life that you were supposed to live and couldn't, that I died in your place, the death that you deserved, that that you didn't die, that I will die, and that I will rise again then, That's how you gain eternal life, to say, I trust you, Jesus. I put all my weight on who you are and nothing I can do. You see, if you're looking for social justice and mercy to save you, to justify you, to make you right with God, it never will. It will only condemn you because you can never do it perfectly enough. It'll never make you right with God. What we need to do is trust Jesus 
Believe that he sees you, and when he does, he responds to you in compassion with no conditions, and he pays the cost so that you can have a relationship with him. What does Jesus want you to do as a result of today? These parables aren't told to say, wow, that's a really neat story. It reminds me of Sunday school. No. He wants us to stop, think, and act. In light of what I've heard today, how does Jesus want you to respond? Is your life marked with compassion? If we've experienced compassion and overwhelming compassion in our lives, it should be. Let's take steps to moving in that direction of growing in Christ. How does he want you to respond today? Father, we thank you. We thank you that this is not just a Jesus thing. It's a Trinitarian thing in the sense that God, God the Father, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the key, and it's because you first loved, and you generously gave us your son, Jesus. The Holy Spirit awakening us to see our need for him, to see ourselves as a sinner and turn to him. We, we are grateful for that. God, I thank you for the day that you opened my eyes to see the, heart, the eyes of my heart to understand my need for Christ. I'm still a work in progress, God. You know that, how selfish I am. God, I want to be more like you. I know I can't do it on my own. I need Holy Spirit power to change my desires. To give me eyes to see like you do, Jesus, instead of just eyes that are looking in the mirror and thinking, what can I do for me? God, I know I don't do it so that I can be accepted by you. I already have acceptance by you, and that's what motivates us to godly living, to generous living. If you're a believer here this morning, it's not about heaping guilt on yourself of what you're not doing so that you can earn further acceptance from God. It's knowing that God has fully accepted you in Christ Jesus through faith alone. That's why we're generous. It's an overflow of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you've never experienced the mercy that comes from God and you're trying to earn your way to eternal life, you never will. Trust him today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.